Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Shari De Silva, curator of the Jeffrey Bauer Trust Art and Archival Collections, and I'm delighted to launch this series of talks. Over the next three weeks, we will speak with writers and scholars across a range of disciplines, including architecture, art history, geography, and urban design, about the Jeffrey Bauer archives. Our speakers are, in fact, the contributors to our forthcoming book titled It is Essential to Be There drawing from the Jeffrey Bauer archives, which will accompany an exhibition of the same name, hopefully opening early next year. In the process of working with our contributors to create this book, um, I had some really great conversations about the drawings done by Jeffrey Bauer's practice, about architectural archives in general, and about that shapeshifter known as modern architecture. So we wanted to open these conversations up to a wider audience through the series of talks. We must also take this opportunity to acknowledge the vitally important work of those who worked on establishing the archive and those who wrote valuable foundational texts upon which we could build on, and of course, those who actually did the drawings. We're also immensely grateful to Bauer's collaborators, clients, and friends who very generously shared their experiences and anecdotes with us through a series of oral histories. And you can access these via our Jeffrey Bauer Trust website. Um, so without further delay, Karina Pereira, the Trust Design and Media Manager, will introduce today's talk and speakers. Thank you, Shari. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Karina Pereira. I will be moderating today's session. Thank you for joining us today for the first session of Conversations Drawing from the Jeffrey Baba Archive series. Before I go into introducing our two speakers, there are a few housekeeping announcements. This session is planned to take place for the next one hour. Our speakers today will present and we will take questions from the audience during the Q&A session after. If you have a question for them, please add it to the Q&A chat box that's available in your Zoom control bar at the bottom of your screen. Also to note that this session is recorded uh, and it is currently live streamed on our YouTube channel. The recording will be available on our channel for later viewing as well. Today's session, Archives and Places, will explore the Baba archives and the role of such repositories in studying modern architectural history. Our speakers today both use archives and primary resources in their research on architecture, and both have written on Sri Lankan architecture of the 20th and 21st centuries particularly. They will draw from this background to tell us more about their approach to the Baba archives. Our first speaker is Shairi De Silva. Shairi is a Sri Lankan architect whose practice focuses on curatorial and editorial projects. She joined the Lunaganga Trust as curator of art and archival collections in 2018, where she manages the Jeffrey Bava collections, including the programs around exhibition, publication, and conservation. After Shairi's presentation, Tariq Jazil will make his presentation. Tariq is Professor of Human Geography and co-founder and founding co-director of the Center for the Study of South Asia and the Indian Ocean World at University College London in the UK. Um, Shairi, would you like to start off this session with your presentation? Thank you, Delini. Um, just gonna put up my screen. So in this talk, I'm going to focus on the primary question we explore in the book as well as in the exhibition, 
which is the ways in which the Jeffrey Bauer archive informs our understandings of the practice. To me, what it shows is a practice that was grounded in explorations of place, an emphasis on site in the topographic and climate-related connotations of the word, but also in the broader socioeconomic and geopolitical aspects of a specific place. In Bauer's own words, the site gives the most powerful push to a design, along with the brief. Without seeing the site, I cannot work. It is essential to be there. After two hours on the site, I have a mental picture of what will be there and how the site will change, and the picture does not change. Bauer generally resisted writing about his work and had a singular and sometimes self-contradictory approach to how drawings and documents were preserved. And that's a subject that merits its own book, so I'm not going to focus on it here. But the Jeffrey Bauer archive, as it exists today, is by no means comprehensive or even cohesive. Because he wrote so little on his, um, on his work and on architecture in general, I pay great attention to the words which Bauer did choose to publish in my research. One of the really interesting things that we find through the archives is that the statement by Bauer in the 1986 Nima publication, now widely referred to as the White Book, which you see on the left here, actually reuses large parts of a text previously published in the Architects' Journal in 1969, which you see on the right, in minimal, with minimal revisions on the reprinted sections. While there are many possible readings as to why an architect might choose to use the same words almost 20 years later, my own interpretation is that his focus in establishing a practice in the newly independent island was a long-standing commitment to an idea of place, underlined by an understanding of that place as multi-layered, nuanced, and heterogeneous. Bauer began his career as an architect while still practicing professionally as a lawyer with the purchase of Lunuganga, an abandoned rabbi estate in 1948. Here in this slide, you see a few pages from a letter to his friend, Jean Chamberlain, where he describes the process of purchasing the land and creating the garden. He talks about how he tried to buy a place in Italy and eventually gave up the whole thing. Instead, in his words, I would go home and buy a land somewhere near home. The decision to buy land on the brink of the island's independence from the British Empire was a key step in determining the drive behind an architecture practice that was deeply embedded in exploring notions of place. Bauer's work, which is marked by multiplicity rather than categorization, charts many aspects of understanding site in its broadest terms, a place inflected by layers of historical, social, political, cultural, and environmental forces. On this subject, he says, I like to regard all past and present good architecture in Sri Lanka as just that, good Sri Lankan architecture. For this is what it is, not narrowly classified as Indian, Portuguese, or Dutch, early Sinhalese, or Candian, or British colonial. For all the good examples of these periods have taken the country itself into first account. His essay in 1969 in the Architects' Journal used the same sentence substituting Ceylon for Sri Lanka. Ceylon officially took the name of Sri Lanka in 1972. Given the divide and rule tactics of the British colonizers and the way racial divides would play into post-independence politics of this country, this idea of taking the country itself into first account is radical. 
I'm now going to turn to a few projects via the archive to look a bit more closely at these explorations on place. So starting with Ina de Silva House, which was completed in 1962, which responded to Colombo's increasing density through an inward looking courtyard. It became a pivotal interrogation of the contemporary urban dwelling in Sri Lanka. The domestic courtyard is a trope that traditionally appears in vernacular Sri Lankan homes, <coughs> excuse me, across ethnic cities. However, Bawa draws on the vernacular here in the manner of a modernist architect, looking back at the past in order to look to the future, much like Le Corbusier had done with Maison Jaoul, Notre Dame du Haut, and Chandigarh, and as Frank Lloyd Wright had with the Prairie Style Houses and the Wiley House. In Sri Lanka, a traditional courtyard would offer a sacrosanct space for the household deities or the women of the house, and it would carve out separation from the ground plane. In the Ina de Silva house, the ground continues from floor to garden, and so the courtyard serves to bring the inside out in what was at the time a very small site. The courtyard is not a shelter, but a stage, and would become the site of Ina's avant-garde batik practice. The communal spaces of the home are not merely adjacent to the courtyard. They rely on this extension of space afforded by the central void. In contrast, the Jayawardena house in Mirisse, Bawa's penultimate project, is a partly below ground structure with a ground level living space defined by columns rather than walls, allowing for residents to engage with the stunning clifftop site, unimpeded by buildings. This house, designed four decades after the Ina de Silva house, is in some ways an expression of how little building is required in the face of a magnificent site. Quote, where even in the darkness, there is no horizon without a tree, end quote, as described by Mike Rondacci in his poem, House on the Red Cliffs. Here you see Bauer's copy of that poem given to him by the poet, now in our archives. And I should just say that the previous photograph by Sebastian uh, is the only image I'm showing which is not from our archives. If we turn to Hanwelle, the Yahapatendera Farm School, an ambitious project for orphaned girls to learn agricultural and craft skills, which negotiated a complex terrain to manage a diverse set of uses while retaining a connection to the rural landscape. The project is described in Bawa's own words as follows. It was important to end up with a building that related to buildings in the countryside with which the girls were familiar. This was achieved and formed the visual framework within which this particular education, technical, practical, and spiritual, could blossom. By contrast, the Polanthalawa Estate Bungalow of 1963, in the rocky terrain of Dreiso recasts a colonial building typology into a radically new form, where, existing, where the existing boulders and features of the land are used to, de to define the spaces of the bungalow, working with the existing conditions rather than creating a tabula rasa, as had been the colonial practice, which would have walled the whole thing up. I'm going to read this rather long quote because I believe it's a really important one in terms of Bauer's approach to architecture. He says, at random, I take an isolated item, the what is now called Singhala tile. The Arab traders introduced to Sri Lanka many centuries ago, the half round clay roofing tile of the Mediterranean world. But the roofs built in Sri Lanka with them were more steeply pitched to shed the huge rainfall of our country. 
The Portuguese and the Dutch used the same tile and roof pitch, but the latter raised the roofs higher for coolness, with wide eaves and verandas to shade the walls. In the hill country, the Kangians used a flat clay tile like a shingle on their double-pitched roofs in meeting halls, which had only columns, no walls, an answer to a way of life, a great roof to give shade and shelter, open to the drift of air and the encompassing view. More than functional building, it is first rational building, for it is rational to give presence to both function and form, to admit beauty and pleasure as well as purpose. When Bauer formally began his architecture career as a partner at Edward Reed and Begg in 1957, the practice was inspired with the possibilities for building innovation, unlocked by the technological advancements of the previous decades. However, these options were soon cut short when Sri Lanka's economy began to close in the 1960s, which continued until 1977 with austerity measures in place as part of the island's association with the non-aligned movement and the drive towards self-sufficiency. Steel and glass, the two materials which enabled much of the architectonics which defined modern architecture, were in short supply in Sri Lanka. Bauer and his associates were left to find alternative means to express the forms and spaces that they were conceiving of using the materials at hand. At the same time, they began to explore the materials and methods of building from a pragmatic standpoint. The steel reinforcements that held up St. Thomas's preparatory school corroded. And while the building, replete with murals by Anil Kamini Jayasuriya, Ina de Silva's son, was magnificent when it first opened, its unsuitability to the island's climate and the building's coastal location soon became apparent. These black and white pictures that I'm showing are actually Jeffrey's own pictures, which are in our archives. St. Bridget's Montessori, begun the year after St. Thomas's was complete in 1963, is ostensibly still made of exposed concrete, but the introduction of a monitor roof explored how the design of a building could better serve the Sri Lankan climate. And here you see um, the murals um, here at the bottom with the, the elephants drawn by Barbara Sansoni, and these low openings so that the toddlers could see out of the building. Um, this evolving exploration in the, sorry, I just, um, this evolving exploration is continued in the buttress supports at the Steel Corporation, which you see here um, on, in the photograph as well as in the section. And this clinching innovation is really the roof hung suspended floor plate at the Bentheta Beach Hotel. In addition to responding to the local climate, these projects are also reflections of the zeitgeist with their emphasis on functionality and the innovative use of available resources and materials during a period of scarcity. Architecture inevitably takes on a symbolic role and buildings can often be deployed to signify meanings and convey ideas. So although Baba is shrewd writing and theorizing on his work, he was unable to avoid this aspect of the discipline completely. At the Ceylon Pavilion at the Expo 70 in Osaka, a forum where the avant-garde metabolist group from Japan and Archigram from the UK also exhibited, Ceylon's pavilion would illustrate a continually evolving national identity. 
ERMB is designed for the Ceylon Pavilion, steered by Anuradha Vibhushanan, displayed an array of archaeological objects in a modern structure, once more looking to the future while looking back, to explore the possibilities of architecture for Sri Lanka. The pavilion was conceived and constructed in a mere six weeks with a minimal budget. Yet it received wide acclaim, described by Jim Richards, editor of the Architectural Review at the time, in a personal letter to Bawa as one of the very best, elegant and without the fast most of them only confuse the visitor by making, and in the Hindu as notable for economy, austerity and elegance. The pavilion consisted of two glass-walled steel-framed cubes set at an obtuse angle, connected by a balcony. Light fittings were ceiling-hung paper atapattam or cuboctohedron lanterns, and the triangular niches of the famous cloud walls from the Kangdian Kingdom, already modernized by Minetta Silva and Bawa for adapted use in houses, was flattened to form a paper screen that modulated light coming through the glass walls. Archaeological artifacts were placed alongside the contemporary batiks by Ina de Silva in this modern structure emphasizing an image of Ceylon looking to its past as it looked ahead. So going back to the quote I started with, when Bauer says it is essential to be there, I read that as a claim to understanding the context of the place, to recognizing what it takes to build there, to live there. In the course of Bauer's career, architecture in Sri Lanka became professionalized and highly skilled craftsmen and builders were gradually replaced by mechanized fabrication methods and less skilled labor. This alone meant that the role of the architectural drawing would change during this time. Many of the drawings in the archive today are those made by the practice after the buildings were completed. Very few of these sheets bear the, whole, the folds and crimps that result from being taken to a construction site and worked over in situ, as architectural drawings so often are. The opportunity to look at these drawings close up presents careful draftsmanship coupled with flights of fancy and moments of ennui by their authors. These documents present a view of what Bauer's buildings could be, moments, moods, and scenarios, which are key to accessing the essence of an architecture that defied categorization and definitive readings, but were fundamentally tied to exploring nations of place. Thank you. Over to you, Tariq. Thanks so much, um, Shayari. That was that was fantastic, really fabulous, and great to also get these kind of tantalising glimpses of what's in the archive as well. Um, so I'm just going to also start my slideshow and share my screen. Just give me one second. Okay, so you should be able to see my slideshow. Yeah, you can see nodding heads. Okay, so um, thank you very much um, for the introduction to talk in this exciting series of, of conversations, and also um, the invitation to participate in the book. Um, I, what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes or so is to give you something of a redux of the chapter that I've written for the book, which is ostensibly a reflection on the uh, what I think are the importance of archives for engaging with tropical or indeed any kind of architecture 
Um, and it's a chapter that's written from my perspective as a critical geographer, i.e. someone who's not an architect uh, and, and therefore I'm not trained in architectural process, technique and so on. So what I hope therefore to convey through the talk as I do in the chapter is I guess my commitment to contextualizing architecture socially, culturally, historically, and the role that archives can play in helping us to do that. And I think Chayari has already um, done some of that um, really important work actually. Uh, so I'm gonna to speak to the written chapter and it's a chapter that begins um, as the exhibition uh, intends to with architectural drawing. And the question of what an architectural drawing, drawing does. And, and I start in the chapter with an encounter with a couple of architectural interns that I was lucky enough to shadow um, quite a few years ago now when I was doing research for my book, Sacred Modernity. So one afternoon they showed me some fairly typical architectural drawings of an, an estate on which they were working, drawings that looked something like the ones you can see at the moment, but of course these weren't the drawings. Um, you know, they were overhead plot views comprising straight, clean lines marked with precision and apparent scalar accuracy. And one of the interns looked at me, she looked back at the plan and said to me, they're dead. And she elaborated by stressing that she didn't like the clean geometered straight line method of architectural drawing because it purges the plans of the, the spatial fluidity and sense of place that tropical architects like her work hard to produce. So the clean straight line, she told me, doesn't lend itself to the interplay of inside and outside. Uh, and she explains, she went on to explain how she routinely overscores the, the kind of clinical exactitude of technical drawings with a free hand, lending to them what she referred to as a kind of shaky effect that gives the drawings life. Drawings um, like, like this, like the ones you're looking at at the moment, she explained, um, sorry, drawings like the ones she was telling me about, the ones that she likes to do, she explained, uh, aimed for an at once detailed yet poetic depiction of spatial design. And of course, what became clear to me in this encounter was that for these architects, drawing wasn't simply a matter of, of mimetically representing plots or buildings on which they worked. Instead, for tropical architects, drawing performs ideas and geographical imaginations. Architectural drawing articulates attitudes, senses of place, and, and most of all, poetics. She told me, she told me how at their architectural school, their instructors taught this kind of aesthetic disposition in a drawing technique that they often referred to as rendering. And we can trace this process of rendering back to the 1960s or so, possibly even earlier, when the sadly now departed Lucky Senanaika and others began to draw like this because of their own dissatisfaction with architectural modernity's une uneasy relationship with the site. Um, where trees, shrubs, and other unique features were represented by abstract geometric symbols. So for the likes of Senanaika, Ismet Rahim, and others, many others, this kind of abstraction was entirely at odds with the concerted effort to open structures out, allowing inside and outside to merge, uh, and, and uh, buildings to merge with, with landscape itself, which was, of course, the emerging hallmark of the tropical style of building practice in post-independent Ceylon. 
Surrender was, for Senanayake and Rahim, a completely different way of attuning viewers with sight, with intention, and the kind of spatial experience that tropical architecture engendered. As David Robson has put it, this was a, a phenomenological mode of representation. And my chapter dwells on this word rendering. In fact, it's, it's called rendering place. Um, and the word uh, rendering, which I think use, usefully conveys much more than just a style of architectural drawing, because of course the verb to render is also to make, to cause to be or become. And as I've been suggesting, the drawings associated with the Barber office are drawings that play a constitutive role in causing this architecture to be or become what is architects intend it to mean. They're devices in some senses that help an architect convey spatial meaning and experience, and they should be seen as such. Uh, and of course, in making this point, I'm drawing on a long tradition of work in the humanities um, on the relationship between space landscape and representation from the likes of people like John Berger, WJT Mitchell, uh, Dennis Cosgrove and, and many others. So having made this point about the importance of architectural drawings, my, my chapter pulls back a little bit from the drawings uh, to think about how all architecture always has a context. Like great writers, musicians and artists, Architects too work within historical, social and cultural contexts. And the Barra archive, I suggest, offers us an insight into the broader terrain of tropical architecture conceived, as I would argue we must, as part of the, the broader terrain of post-colonial modernism in, in Ceylon. To this extent, the chapter then connects this process of, of rendering considered as a process of drawing that produces architectural meaning to a broader textual field that helps to produce meanings, the meanings of tropical architecture in and through society. For if my argument thus far is that architecture can't be understood through just buildings alone, then it follows that the Bawa archives can show us the historical, social and cultural context through which his work came to be positioned semantically and symbolically within post-colonial uh, Sri Lanka. And I think Shayari is really nicely begun to do some of that work. Built space was and is dependent on, on myriad other registers, including, for example, things like client demand, political economy, planning and zoning regulations, religious and political currents, taste, and of course, mere happenstance. But to say it's merely dependent on these external factors is to underplay, I think, the role that architecture historically has played in, in also shaping some of those complex assemblages. So my point is that, is that no architecture can, can be unpicked from the patina of the culture, society and historical context in, 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 in which it emerges. And here then in the chapter, I um, develop the notion of, of what I refer to as not exactly architecture. It's a term I borrowed from the architectural theater, uh, theorist, Anthony Vidler. And Tony Vidler tells us that architecture necessarily exists in a broader, expanded field. Uh, and as such, architecture's archival traces take on huge significance for anyone interested in the archaeological work of placing built space in the broader contextual histories in which it inevitably participated. And this, of course, begs a question of methodology. So how might we go 
about this kind of archaeological work. And in the next section of the, the written chapter, I offer a few speculations on this methodological question by turning first to the work of, of, of Bawa, particularly at Lunaganga, hence the, the slide that you're seeing at the moment, but second um, to the work of his contemporary Minette de Silva, um, who we know influenced Bawa, but who I think was, it's fair to say, much more public about her process, her influences and architectural intention. And it's this that I'm going to focus on um, for the rest of the talk. So I'm going to focus a bit more on Minette de Silva in what follows. So unlike Barber's portfolio, the vast majority of de Silva's built work, as many of us in this meeting will know, no longer exists. So any analysis of her architecture must negotiate its material absence and turn to the what I've referred to as not exactly architecture for a proper understanding of her practice. So our attempts to understand De Silva's work can teach us a lot about how to approach the Barwa archive, I think. And even though there's no single publicly accessible archive of De Silva's drawings or other textual fragments, as, as many of us again will know, before she died, De Silva put together a memoir with the help of Ashley DeVos, The Life and Work of an Asian Woman Architect. This book is on your screen now. And so at once scrapbook, diary, coffee table book and a compilation of her work and other fragments. It's an invaluable resource for any scholar of Minette de Silva's work. It's chaotic, it's difficult to follow, but I think it's also a, tre a treasure chest full with de Silva's thoughts, ideas and glimpses into her main influences, both professional and personal. It's a valuable document, not just because of its descriptions drawings and, and photographs of buildings long since demolished, but also for its collected ephemera that enable us to, to place her work in its wider field of cultural production. As the architectural historian Anuradha Ayasadiki has written, the book is that rare case of a fish describing the water in which it swims. And from it, I think we can locate her practice within Ceylon's broader post-colonial and ethno-national social and political currents. To take, for example, her description of the 1954 Amra Singer House. I apologize that the next few slides there are a little bit text heavy. I'm not going to read all of the text out in the next few slides, but I am going to read this, this quote out because it's a description of uh, the Amra Singer House uh, written by Minette de Silva. So she writes how house walls are pierced with openings influenced by traditional economically designed air vents. There are a few solid walls, the main structures carried by reinforced concrete pillars with reinforced concrete flat slab floors. The enclosing walls of lewd or sliding glass, uh, doors and windows or wood or wrought iron trellises direct every available air draft into the house. The roof space is utilised as an attic study. Note the niches for pahanas. Notes, the garden, courts and house flow into one another. Materials, flat slab and column structures, woodwork, jackwood, polished, colour, light cherry, sliding doors and windows. During the Pirit ceremony, the priest made us all laugh as his sermon consisted of consolation for the Amra singers as their house didn't appear to be finished. Of course it was. He just didn't think there was enough decoration or walls to hold the thing up. So... De Silva's clients, the Umra Singers, were a middle-class and professional nuclear family. 
They were both Buddhist and Sinhalese, but I think it's fair to say not implicated in the populist Sinhala Buddhist nationalism of the mid of mid 1950s Ceylon. I think it's also fair to say that the priests and monks invited to bless the house represent a public institution, the clergy, of considerable power and far closer to populist nationalism at the time. As such, what, what interests me about this excerpt are the lengths actually to which De Silva goes to distinguish her modern architectural sensibility from the priest's fear that the house didn't appear to be finished. And given she described an encounter that took place just two years before the 56 ethnic riots and the singular only language bill as well, in a historical conjuncture where there was growing popular dissatisfaction with the UNP's pluralism, her laughter at the priest's incomprehension of the house's structural integrity, I think, performs a kind of distancing from the politicized community that um, he represents. At the same time, by his very presence uh, at the house period ceremony, De Silva describes a, a mise-en-scene wherein the structure's non-secular essence is actively inscribed. So in short then, for De Silva, the house embodied what I think is an architected teleology, wherein the sacred, Buddhism that is, is allowed to become modern and cosmopolitan on its own terms, and, and cleaved also from the ethnic absolutism that was creeping across 1950s Ceylonese society. Now, elsewhere in, in the book, in her, her memoir, um, there are clues regarding De Silva's architectural influences. She was inspired by Geddes, uh, Patrick Geddes' notion of conservative surgery, which advocated modern improvement sensitized to the roots of regional culture. And she saw in conservative surgery a roadmap for new vanguardist Ceylonese architecture, offer, offering an avowedly post-colonial departure that walked in step with Ceylon's political ambition towards independence. Conservative surgery held the potential to, to, to kind of concretize a rupture with the standardizations of colonial architecture, anticipating many local iterations of modern architecture across the world. And as she wrote in, in her book, it provided the perfect counterbalance to the Corbusian classical. The two complementing each other became the foundation for most of my thinking. So De Silva's architecture then was what we, we might call it a search for the ordinary or at least a search for the historical, despite its resolute modernism. And in this respect, her book also tells us how she found architectural inspiration in the ethnicized craft traditions of Ananda Kumarasamy's 1908 monograph, Medieval, Medieval Singhalese Art, which of course was a, was a manifesto of sorts for a modern revival of Singhala craft traditions um, that had much lost of their, uh, sorry, that had much of, the historical provenance in the Candian kingdom. And indeed her own book, De Silva's own book, pays homage to Kumaraswamy's 1908 text, such that we can surmise how, for De Silva, her work not only had a geographical foundation in the former Candian kingdom, it was explicitly congruent with, with Candian aesthetic traditions that were at the heart of post-colonial national imagination. So De Silva emphasizes that my parents had kept our roots intact for my generation, but now I had to interpret this in architecture. I decided to, <coughs> excuse me, to live in Kandy, it being the center of Ceylon and the heart of our national tradition. 
Now, De Silva's equation of Kumaraswamy's um, historical narrative about candy and singular craft with an understanding of the pre-colonial national thought retroactively as Singhalese wasn't entirely of her own making. And this is where I think we need to be careful to place her work in the broader context of what was going on at the time, particularly in terms of modernist discourse. And as her book also attests, she was deeply influenced by her association with the 43 group. And in particular, her friendship with the, the painter, George Keat, who she met through uh, her mother's cousin, Lionel Bent. And the 43 group, of course, advanced their own forms of anti-colonial aesthetic expression, which combined distinctively Ceylonese formal and pictorial symbols with European modernist trends. Theirs was an attempt to express Ceylonese particularity in resolutely modern terms. But it was a particularity that also betrayed the underlying assumption that the contours of the post-colonial national to come were contiguous with Buddhist and Sinhala tradition, whose cultural and geographical kernel was the Candian kingdom. Um, and my chapter, I'm not gonna read this quote on the screen now. My chapter develops a reading of the quote from Keat, which appears in print, it's reproduced in De Silva's book. And I don't have the time to go into it here, but my point is that what Keat, De Silva and other modernists were doing, I think, was, was, was allowing the particularity of Candian Buddhist and Sinhalese culture to slide over and discursively territorialize the emergent post and anti-national, uh, sorry, post and anti-colonial national. So what De Silva's own archive of sorts tells us then is, is that for her, the ordinariness that post-colonial Ceylonese conservative surgery aimed at recuperating had particular historiographical and cultural coordinates. Now, I want to be absolutely clear in closing now that my argument is not to impugn De Silva. It's not to associate, align her work with singular Buddhist nationalism. Uh, that's a, that would be a misinterpretation of the reading here, but rather, I think it's to suggest that, that contrary to much of the rhetoric around Sri Lankan tropical architecture, it's never simply outside political and, and cultural uh, eddies. As forms of artistic modernism, architects like De Silva, Barber as well, produced work that was inescapably part of the, the weft and warp of post-colonial nationhood, despite um, some of their own claims to often be working beyond uh, the, the domain of politics. Both, I think, were articulating visions of a uniquely Ceylonese modernism. My argument here is that it's only by paying attention to the not exactly architecture um, that surrounds their work that we're able to begin to do the work of placing their architecture contextually so within these wider currents and debates. And today I've spoken about the chapter's engagement with De Silva, but the chapter also does engage with some of the, 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 the very few things that I think Bawa uh, at least published about his, his own work, particularly Lunaganga, um, which I engage with in the chapter, uh, where I think there were some kind of equally interesting efforts on his part to um, place his estate uh, within the context of the, the low country uh, Sinhalese landscape context that surrounds it. And, and I go back here to what Shayari was talking about in terms of the, the importance of sight here. But my point in this chapter, though, is that, is that paying attention to architecture's intertexts, to its ephemera, to this broader textual field, enables us to pose some important questions concerning 
not just what its influences were, but also what the effects of tropical architectural modernism was in the broader post-colonial social context. What broader social and political debates did the narrative dimensions of their architecture and their building practices participate in, even as, it, as we acknowledge their own desire to, to kind of sidestep politics, or in Bauer's case, to refrain from talking about talking publicly about his practice. And these, I think, are important questions, particularly in the context of some of the larger commissions um, that Bauer particularly was involved in, so the Parliament Building, Ruhna University, uh, and others, for example. And I think that archives can help us along with these questions. And, and, and this is, I think this is just a, a, a sketch, really, of why I think the opening of the archives is so important for many of us. And I'll, I'll leave it here. Um, thank you, Tariq and Shairi for two very insightful presentations. Um, quick announcement to our audience. If you have a question for our speakers, uh, please add them to the Q&A chat box uh, in your Zoom control bar. Um, let me start off with a question uh, to the both of you. So you both spoken about the importance of archives, which are invariably maintained in different forms, right? In Baba's case, without much personal correspondence, but with drawings, or in Minette de Silva's case, it's a memoir resembling a portfolio, scrapbook, diary of sorts. Um, they both, in their own way, contributed to creating an archive for their practice in two different ways. How do we now look back at their practices based on this? Um, Shire, would you like to go first? Um, I think Bauer's approach to archiving, it, it sort of just skimmed over this in my presentation, but it was very strange because he, um, I don't know how many people know this, but when he moved from, moved his office from number two to number 11, which is where I am, um, he actually started a bonfire with um, a vast amount of drawings and about a third of them are lost because of that. And I think at that point, Chana and others who were there um, had to stop it and say, these drawings are not really um, um, yours to destroy actually at that point. Um, and I think he was very suspicious of the kind of archival afterlife of his work. And I, I personally attribute that to this kind of obsessive redrawing and re-editing of buildings much, much later, much after they were completed. Um, and it's, I mean, as, as Tariq said, this is the person, this is the practice that built the new Sri Lankan parliament. But we have so few of the contracts and um, the kind of paperwork that actually goes into doing a project like that. The, and certainly letters, um, the correspondence we have is that which was donated by external people who collected his letters and you know kept correspondence outside of uh, Bala himself. Um, I think also there was just a lot less drawings produced, which speaks to just a different time of making architecture where you could do things on site. And I mean, today, um, legally, if you're an architect, you have to produce a whole sheaf of drawings because that's part of your contract and you're held to that. Um, so it also speaks to time where, I mean, the kind of trust that his clients had in him or had in the practice um, I think one other thing I would add is that what you see in the archives is how collaborative um, 
architecture creation is. And I think it's very easy. I mean, I, I just did it too. Like we talk about the Jeff Bauer archive, but really it is the work of so many people. And what we see when we look at these drawings is actually um, they weren't, they were, they were part of what that work was. And you see that you can tell, um, I mean, very few of the drawings are signed, but you can tell what's a drawing by Andra, what's a drawing by Nihal, you know, you can, um, so I think that is something that archives kind of really show to us. Um, yeah. Charlie, could you like to add to that? Yeah, thank you um, for the question. And uh, I mean, I think, you know, to, to, to an extent, the chapter tries to grapple with what we do with De Silva's considerable um, archival presence or public presence in a sense. I mean, there's a bigger, there's an irony here, I think, uh, I was thinking through this question, there's an irony here insofar as, you know, in some senses, it's probably fair to say that we know a lot more about Jeffrey Barwer now than we do about Minette de Silva, or rather he, he's much more well-known, let's, let's put it that way, than Minette de Silva. Yeah, I think Minette de Silva was a much more public figure, actually, um, you know, and, and uh, she was, she was, um, not afraid of, of, of being a public figure and, you know, wanted a sort of uh, a public profile and the publication of her book, I think, testifies to that. But also, you know, her involvement in various um, circuits and, and networks of, uh, of discussion and debate around international modernism or modernism in, in, in an international context. Um, and rather, Aya Siddiqui, I know, is doing some really interesting work around this and, and would be able to speak to, to that more. I think what, what fascinates me, though, about Jeffrey Barber and the work that you're doing at the Trust to, to make the archives accessible is that I, I think it does precisely allow us now to be able to, to be able to kind of place a lot of his work in in context and the Shari used the word site you know you're, you're thinking a lot about site in in your talk and I think you know if, if we had an uh, an expanded sense of what that word site means I think it would also incorporate the kind of social cultural and historical context and I think the archive opening the archive well first of all putting it together right that the, the hard work is in putting the archive together opening it is is easy in some senses but the hard work is in compiling the archive and and that work to, to comprise that archive will, I think, um, offer the opportunity for people to um, look again at Jeffrey Barwer in, in some more interesting uh, ways. Well, not more interesting, but just as interesting different ways, I think. And I would come back to what I said about, you know, my own disciplinary location here as a geographer, not an architect. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in architecture, yes, but I'm interested in architecture insofar as it's in and off this world, right? Um, um, so, so those are the kinds of questions I'm interested in, both with Minette de Silva and Jeffrey Barwa. How do they fit into the broader context of what was going on at the time? Right. Um, I have a follow-up question, I think, um, based on what you said about uh, Minette being also more public and uh, being private, but there's um, you see what I'm asking you. Um, you speak about the importance of representing culture and responding to a specific climate in your architectural drawings. 
and that is situated in a wider social, cultural, and political forces. How do you think Jeffrey Bava and Minit De Silva tackle this in their practice? And the whole public-private thing is, do you think there was a gendered element to this? Sharik, would you like to answer? I think that's precisely one of the questions that the opening of the archives, with respect to Jeffrey Bawa, that's you know one of the questions that the opening of the archives possibly allows us to go and to go and, and try and answer, right? Um, is how he was responding to what was going on at the time, and you know I, I thought a lot about you know his desire to be to not be public actually about you know about what he what he did and his practice etc and, and what that means um and and i think that's an ethical question you know that, that that's an interesting question around ethic the ethics of archives etc as well that we might want to think about but um you know i i get it that there are you know it's not just architects it's all kinds of artists actually and i do actually think that that architects are artists insofar as they produce wonderful <laughs> uh, creations, right? But all kinds of artists want to sort of, um, often want to kind of maintain that illusion of, of kind of artistic genius working working alone, um, right? And that's the conceit of modernism in some senses, whether it's artistic, architectural, or, or whatever, or literary. Um, but allowing us to be able to sort of see what cultural context they, they, they work in, and here I'm using, I, I think the relationship between environmental context and cultural context are, are, are critical because, you know, we can think about environment just as a, a physical landscape, but I think we have to widen our understanding of what the tropical environment means, right? And after, I mean, that's another question for us to think about is what, where does this idea of tropicality come from in the tropical environment? But allowing us to see the broader tapestry, the weft and warp of, of the social context in which people like Barbara were working, I think, is, is, is what we can possibly do now. Shari, did you, do you have anything to add to that? I think you're muted. Sorry. <laughs> You're on mute. <laughs> oh, still ask me if I wanted to unmute. <laughs> Sorry, um, I, I was going to say that I, I agree that it's a very um, complex answer, probably not one we can really cover in the span of, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly I frequently in the work in the archives wonder like, um, one of the reasons we haven't really opened up yet, and we're still in that process of cataloging and digitizing and all of that, but um, there is a lot of material that I think Bawa worked very hard to keep private. And then um, we're talking about, you know, um, a group of people that largely, there's still many of them here, and how do we respect that privacy while opening up to scholarship, which is integral. Um, and it's, I think, um, something to be done very thoughtfully, and that's what we're trying to do. But I think, I mean, there's reasons we can each ascribe to why Bauer was so private. And um, those, I think, could be very personal, and I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking about them because I'm not, I, was, I didn't even know him. 
but I think um, that's that's a really interesting thing about archives. They kind of open up these questions, looking back um, without with us reading through them rather than being able to just ask him, well, what do you think of archives, <laughs> you know? I just, I just want to quickly come back on that and add to that because I think, I think you're absolutely right, Shari. And I think, you know, I, I probably didn't express myself very well. What I meant to, to really say was that, you know, Barwa's decision to, to be quite private is in some senses a sort of public declaration as well, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a statement in and of itself. Um, yeah, and I think it's yeah. also a, a different way to deal with being a minority or in the in the limits of society in different ways. Um, and it's so that's why I think I really enjoyed your, your conversation, Tariq, because it it talks about the different ways in which these questions have been approached in recent Sri Lankan architectural history. Um, okay, I think we have. Um, we're going to open the floor to. Uh, questions from the audience now. Um, let's start with Hirusha Randima. Uh, he asks, are there any evidence they criticized each other's work? I'm guessing it's about Jitribhava and Vinokti Silva. Um, would any of you like to answer that? Um, as, um, as far as I know, I think Minette did speak about Jeffrey and I I think they, I mean, they couldn't not have known each other or they, I think they very much did know each other and their work. And you have to remember, I mean, one of the people I didn't mention, but who was very important in that early, um, the first years of Bauer's practice is Ulrich Plesner, who started working with Minet and then left to work with Bauer. Um, and um, with, we have, I mean, I have seen zero evidence in the archive of Bauer saying anything about Minet. Um, I, I think that Tyke, maybe you know, um, Minute did say something about Ansevery. <laughs> I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, but I think the, you know, that's another, um, that's another kind of missing, missing narrative is the, the story of their relationship with each other and, you know, what they, how they, whether they corresponded or what, rather, what they thought of each other and, and how. There's an, I think undoubtedly they influenced one another, right? Um, and, and I'd love to know more about the nature of that kind of relationality that existed between them. And, you know, the likelihood is that there's someone in this meeting who probably does know something about this. And um, so please do enter it into the chat if, or, or, you know, raise your hand or whatever if you do. But, um, but yeah, I'd love to know more about about their, the, the relations between them, the, the discourse between them, because we tend to think of them as, as discrete kind of siloed entities, right? And that's part of, I guess, what I've been saying is that they did exist in, in, in a context, in a broader context, and they were part of each other's context. Rush, I hope that uh, answers your question. Um, next, we have a question from Ruin de Silva. How important is the archiving to the digital era of architecture? Um, sorry, do you want to go first? Do you have any? Oh, I definitely have a thought with this. <laughs> you do? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can talk about 
digitization in archives more generally, but if you want to start and then I'll come in. Sure, I mean, I, I think um, digitizing is essential because it allows for access. Um, it allows, I mean, just from a very kind of material archiving sort of conservation point of view, you really want, you don't want to be handing the drawings every time you want to look at them. Um, so archives allow us to preserve them actually. Um, it allows us to have authors writing about them from across the world. Um, um, but I'm also very much, of the, and this is something I really talk about in my piece for the book, is that at the end of the day, it's a very corporeal repository. And I think there's a lot that you can tell, look, and I mean, I, when I was an architecture student, encountered these drawings either on pages as reproductions or on screen. And being able to access them in person has been an enormous privilege because there's so much more that you see um, just from the way lines are drawn, the kind of margin notes. If a supposed construction drawing has zero bends in it, it tells you something about how it was used. Um, so I think they're very important, but they're also not substitutes. It's a summary of what I think. Yeah, it's kind of exactly what I was going to say about archives more generally, you know, that I mean, there's so many archives are being digitized these days. And that's fantastic, particularly, you know, given what we've we're all going through, through now and have been for the last year and a half or so, when we've when, when we've not been able to travel to archives, right, as researchers or students. Um, we've been able to access them from our, our living rooms, right, or our bedrooms or wherever. And, and that's fantastic. It, it really is. So the digitization of archives has, has a really important role, I think, to play in the kind of democratization of, of research, scholarship, ideas. But I also don't think it, it kind of um, it's any substitute for, for the, 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 the materiality of archival documents themselves and the materiality of doing archival work um, in the archive itself, um, and there's a lot. There's a lot to say about that, um, actually. And and I think and Shire has just spoken about that. But the other, the only thing I would add is that we we're faced also now at this conjuncture, I think, with an abundance, a superabundance of of archival material that kind of comes to us through our computers digitally. Um, and it can also, in that context, it's a kind of archival overload in some senses, right, in the digital era. And, and that's, that's great on the one hand, but it's also, you know, I think we need to be careful that it can, too much access to too much documentation can get in the, in the way of thinking, <laughs> actually, right? And, and uh, you know, feeling like you, you're, you have the authority to, to develop ideas in the knowledge that there's this infinite abundance of archival material that you should still continue to go through before you feel qualified to say anything. Okay, um, next, thanks. Um, next, we have a question from Sumudu Adhokorada. Is there any original design sketches done by Jeffrey by himself in the archive? How did he present the first design idea to a client through proper drawings or his own sketches? Um, thanks, Mulu. I think we do have a lot of original drawings. I wish we had all of them, but we don't. Um, we, um, I think they're really interesting because a lot of them are 
um, sort of thinking drawings. And I think I think Chan is going to actually speak a lot about this in his talk next Thursday, just to put a plug for that. Um, but um, we've also had in our oral history, and I, the reason I mentioned the oral histories at the introduction to this talk was that they really informed um, the reading of the archives, the exhibition and the book. And uh, Anura said, you know, he would, when a project came about, uh, Bao would go to the site and do this sketch that then was perfectly scaled, but it like kind of scribbled. And then that was then translated by whomever he was collaborating with into a set of drawings. And I think in terms of what the client saw, we have, the, I think a lot of those kind of exquisite drawings were drawings for the client to seduce them. Sometimes very different to what the building would end up being, but just, um, I mean, there are such exquisite drawings. I think that it's like the modern day rendering, but personally, I like them a lot better. Um, so yes, I think, in terms of, was there always a sort of final presentation drawing? I don't think so. Um, I, and this is because also we're working with fragments of the archive right now, and we're still in that process of really putting it together and understanding, you know, when, you, when we take each of the pieces that describe a project, we see very different approaches. We also see changes in how we approach things all the time. So towards the end of his career, I think there's a lot more complete documentation. And I don't know if that's because the discipline had changed or because people were getting more conscious of preserving drawings. Um, it's probably a bit of both. Um, but I, my sense is that it was a range of, depending on the clients, um, you know, the kind of first thing that was shown to them was quite varied. Um, but it's definitely a question for people who actually worked um, with him. And I think they all, that it also changes what these, the answers to these questions always change depending on who you're asking, because I don't think he had one way throughout his career. Thanks, Shari. Okay, we have a question from Ishita Shah. I think this is uh, to the both of you. I would request the speakers to share their experience share their experiences in the role of an archivist, um, researcher, curator, who are trying to read into the collections and make meaning in the form of an essay or an exhibition. How have the current socio-political situations affected your process? Does your critique of architectural history and present times make way into your readings? Shall I read that again? Shall I? No, it's, it's just, it's a lot of questions. Um, yeah, it's doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's about three questions there. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, I can start by, by in some senses, reiterating what I said about the um, problem of archival abundance, overabundance. Um, it's not a problem at all, actually, but I just think that, I mean, this is always a, an issue for anyone working in archives from the point of view as a, of a researcher, right? If you're, if you're working in archives is you go to an archive and you often have a limited amount of time um, to, to engage with the archive. And what you end up doing is copying documents, making notes from them, or, or if the archive so allows you to uh, take, take photographs or photocopies of documents that interest you in the archive, you take them back with you um, and then you have a, 
a, a, your own personal archive, if you like, of stuff that you need to then go through again uh, and, and do that kind of that, that sift through and that kind of closer reading, that coding or, or, or whatever it is, critical reading. And I think, um, I mean, my sense is that we never approach an archive totally, totally with a totally sort of blank um, uh, disposition, so to speak. We always go to the archive with a set of questions in our heads. And often, you know, those questions change as you're going through the archive. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we, when we're in the process of going through material, it's often the first, the first phase for me of critical reading, actually. Um, and that's where you sort of, for me at least, that's where I kind of develop ideas. And I think it's important to hold on to those and to almost, you know, um, have a little notebook by by your side where you, you you kind of, as things emerge to you, you write down the questions that you think are important because that then informs the way you'll you'll go back through your own personal archive of collected documents. I mean, that's certainly the way that I've worked in archives before. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, I completely agree. I think um, typically when I have done work in archives, I was usually looking for something. So it was an excavation in some ways. Um, and what is amazing about archives is how they're structured so they're um and this is part of what we don't have yet at the at the bower trust but we will eventually is the finding aid because what that does is point you from one thing that you might look in you might go to look for something and it will show you other associations and that's always really exciting i think what was really unique for me and really wonderful about working on this particular archives is i didn't start thinking it was going to be anything it was part of my job at the trust where we were um, we had all these materials from different sources and they needed to be combined. We needed to have a more comprehensive catalog. And in that process, these kind of thoughts started to occur to me and that's how we then kind of formulated this. And that I think is relatively rare. It's not also the most efficient way to do it, but it has been, um, I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. <laughs> and can I just add something as well quickly because uh, there was a, a sort of last paragraph that I didn't, I felt I was running out of time in, in my paper. I didn't really have time to go to, but, and I think Shaira's already hinted at this just in what she just said, but archives are humanly produced, right? And, and you know, I think it's really important to carry to the archives a lot of our, our own critical questions about the relationships between power and the archives, right? So who has made that archive? What has the purpose of that archive been? Whose voices aren't in that archive? Um, you know, to, to sort of critically engage with the archive from the off, I think is a, is a really important thing to do as, as well. And I'm, you know, in this respect, I'm very influenced in my own work by um, feminist histor uh, historians and support and studies uh, as well, who take some of these methodological questions into the ways that they engage in particular archives and across many different archives as well. Yeah, um, I hope that answers your question, Shita. Um, your couple of your questions. Um, we, next, we have a more technical question from Bansi. Does digitizing the original document over and over damage the quality of the original document? Yes, is yes. the answer. Um, I, um, I mean, I just have to give a shout out to Jeffrey Burke, who was the person who actually painstakingly digitized um, a vast 
part of our archive. Um, but it's um, the whole, I mean, if, I don't know if you remember the slide I showed of the steel corporation drawing where whatever way it was being stored originally before it entered the archive um, was it was eaten around and luckily um, the insects left the drawing for us. But they're very, these are very fragile documents and that's why archival research is slow and um, you know, the process of cataloging, storing, it's all, um, it's got to be done with a lot of care. And um, that's why this is a, it's an ongoing effort for us. Yeah, um, next we have Sampreet Rao. On a more general note, how long did Bava take to design considering that there was a long thorough study being done through drawings? I feel like that's not a question that can be answered sort of generally because I think it really um, changed from project to project and if we on one level, if we take that, that original quote I showed that it is essential to be there quote, I think what he says about going to site and having an idea that sort of stuck with him um, was largely true and was, is generally a trend, I think, in, the, um, in his projects. But I think the whole thing about architecture is that it's very, I mean, as, as Tariq said, it's very much in the real world. So you might have a site constraint, you might have a budget constraint. And I think, you know, like Kandalama, for example, completely changed shape because the water table was too high um, at some point. And then um, I think other projects would change for um, like Ruhunu, there was this huge engineering effort um, that I think didn't happen. At one part of it was sinking mid-construction and then they had to kind of raise it. So I think um, I think the timing is really just very, very different based on each project. What's amazing is that the national parliament was built in three years. Um, I mean, if you try to build anything in Sri Lanka in three years, that's quite ambitious. But I think um, really it was Dr. Pulogasundaram, Baba's partner at ERMB, who was both the kind of engineering, I really just want to use the word genius because he was so brilliant. but. Um, also just had a really good um, approach for how he got things done. And he told um, the government, we are going to deal with just one person. We're only answering to one person because otherwise this won't happen. He um, found an amazing Japanese contracting firm and he uh, found ways to prefabricate pieces so that not everything had to be done. I mean, there was a lot of engineering that happened. Um, but I don't think that kind of efficiency really happened with all of the projects. And Ruhunu, for example, took eight years. So, um, but if I saw your question was about design and I think presumably a lot of it happened at the beginning, but I do think it was also informed by the process. And I think that's kind of typical for um, architecture. I hope that answers your question. I'm just gonna um, quickly add to that as well, because I, I think it's probably fair to say that many of um, Jeffrey Barwa's buildings at least are, are still being built, you know, such as the kind of the, the commitment to sort of decay and change and the dynamism of these buildings, you know, like Kandalama is, is, is still being built insofar as, you know, if, if the vision is around the kind of merging of the structure and, and, and site, structure and landscape. Uh, and, you know, as I understand it, that was very much built into the, the, the design process, right? So, I mean, there's an interesting 
overlap there between what you said about the decay of the archives as well. <laughs> you know, the, um, uh, uh, but, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay um, I think we've gone over our time as well. So um, we are going to wrap up. Um, um, Tariq and Shari, thank you for taking the time today to share your research and writing with us. I think we're all looking forward to seeing your work in the forthcoming book. Um, Tariq, thank you for joining us from a different time zone as well. Um, this uh, was the first session of three, part of the, part of the conversations drawing from the Jeffrey Bauer archive series. We hope to see you next Thursday for the second session, results, reports, and recollections with Shirley Surya, Miguel Pereira, and Chandra Daspatta. You can find more information on our website, jeffreybava.com. Um, thank you everyone for participating. Uh, we hope to see you next Thursday and the Thursday after. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.